You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show. And hello if you're listening to the show as a podcast at some other time of the day. A huge thank you to Phoebe Squared for the past three hours of music on maps. Of course, Phoebe will be back next Monday at 4pm here on 3 Triple R. To do that again, my name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined tonight by Josh Nelson and Alexandra Hello Nicholas. Good evening to you both. Hello, hello. Good evening. And I should also say, again, thank you to everybody who listened in to the Radiothon a couple of weeks ago. I haven't seen you two since then. I think we did a really fun, slightly chaotic show. <laughs> Hopefully nothing that people can use against us in court. And that wasn't the reason we weren't here last week. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure Alex and I didn't say anything too controversial. Crazy things may have been said. I would like to remind all the listeners that uh, you need to uh, pay up by 5pm on Wednesday, September the 28th. Uh, thank you again for listening to that show and thank you again for subscribing. But if you haven't paid up, please do so before the 28th. You'll still be in the running for all the wonderful prizes. And you can still subscribe anytime. You can jump on now, jump you online. You can subscribe right this moment. That's a very good point. It's, you know, it's never a bad time to subscribe to Triple R. 40 years and still going incredibly strong. Now, on tonight's show, we have The Truth is Stranger Than Fiction, American political scandal documentary, Wiener. And then the Scottish historical drama, Sunset Song, by the English auteur Terence Davies. But first up, Girl Asleep is a new Australian film that premiered at last year's Adelaide Film Festival. Now, along with the Bangara Dance Theatre film, Spear... It was one of two projects that uh, that year to receive funding from the Hive Fund, which supports screen-based projects that bring together film and other art forms. Now, in the case of Girl Asleep, that other art form is children's or young adult theatre. And the film is an adaptation of a 2014 show by Adelaide's Windmill Theatre. The show was directed by Rosemary Myers and written by Matthew Wittet, both of whom took the same roles on the film. It's a highly stylized coming-of-age film set in the 1970s about 14-year-old Greta Driscoll, who has just started at a new school after moving house with her family, having to contend with her new awkward best friend, the school bullies, her daggy family and her sister's alluring older boyfriend all come together during her 15th birthday party when fantasy and reality converge. Alex, I think you and I both know this film quite well, having seen it a few times, including at the Melbourne International Film Festival. We both did Q&As with the, with the film's director and writer and some of its, its, its young actors. Uh, maybe you can tell us your impressions I'm, of this film first, having seen it, I think, more times than any of us. I have a schoolgirl crush on this film. I really, I'm like googly-eyed and blushing slightly even just talking <laughs> about it. I just adore this film. I have to say, the first time I sat down to watch it, the first couple of minutes I was almost physically flinching. It's like, because it's very stagey and I don't think I was prepared for that and um, and I thought, oh gosh, is this going to be some kind of and certainly the visuals, is this going to be some kind of Wes Anderson fanfic? And they're already promoting it as Wes Anderson-esque. But it's yeah. not, it's not. I mean, I, I get that that is a promotional thing that, that might appeal to some people. I'm not, I'm not particularly pro-Wes Anderson and I just adore, this film just swept me off my feet. I mean, I felt like I was very much seduced by this beautiful little movie the, the extraordinary cast just I, I just can't stop talking about Bethany Whitmore who played Greta it's very she's the girl who is asleep 
um, awake for most of the film. You'll be pleased to hear for those of you interested in seeing it. And please go and see it. I know it's a cliche, but Australian films don't have a particularly easy time at the cinema. It's worth actually coughing up your money, going in, taking your mum or your dad. Or your kids. Take, take any, your kids. any teenagers take in your family me, should go and me. see this. Pay for me to go. I'll pay for did you, myself. Did you meet Bethany with me? I did. I, I, had got, a, I got to meet her as I well. I had a lovely chat to Bethany just before it, and I, I have... Um, uh, it doesn't work on radio, but I wear cat's eye sun, uh, cat's eye glasses. I have cat's eye framed, and she uh, she complimented me, and I, I did a little blush because I love this film and everything <laughs> to do with it. But she told me that she um, what sold her on this film is that she read the script and she loved it, but the fact that it was a seventies retro piece, she just she said that kind of aesthetic just sold her. She said she really liked the film, but when it, when she kind of you know saw the vintage clothing and the way that it was set, that that's what really seduced her for the role. She also told me during the Q and A, and then we had a chat afterwards, which was lovely. That she's quite a cinephile for somebody her age. She knows her stuff, and and the, both the director and the writer were very keen on the young cast looking at some of their influences. And they did show them um, some Wes Anderson films, but they also showed them a lot of David Lynch's stuff. Well, at least hinted towards David Lynch's stuff. I don't think they showed young people, you know, some of the more extreme films, but she's quite a fan of David Lynch and I, and I think that sensibility is in that film in as that well. In that stage, you know, certainly in the dialogue and the way that that dialogue is... Yeah, no, I can yeah. absolutely... It almost reminded me, the dialogue at points almost reminded me of um, Hal Hartley, you know, this very sort of... Very sort of... Very stagey kind of dialogue um, that you're certainly not seeking naturalism in any way. The writing is non-naturalistic, um, but the performances that's sell exactly it. it. We should bring Josh in, who mm. I think has only just recently seen it. You don't Pop sort of have the same. Sweet this is yeah. I've only seen this once, and I'm very keen to see this again, and on a big screen too. I'm really keen to see this on, on a big screen. I had a very similar reaction to you. The first ten minutes, I was kind of grating my teeth, thinking, "Oh, this is going to be another sort of a, a, a faux attempt at Wes Anderson, and not good Wes Anderson like Rushmore, but bad Wes Anderson like Moonrise <laughs> Kingdom." But I think, yeah, to, I love to, that distinction. To, to reduce this film to Wes Anderson does a does a great injustice to the film because it's not. It's not just a kind of a, a stylistic. Um, I forgot you re- didn't like Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, I, I, and I look, quite like that. The, the re- that's, that's the film they showed these kids. Right. The reason, well, <laughs> and it does a disservice to the first fifteen minutes of this film. It could have been better if it had been less like Moonrise Kingdom. Perhaps <laughs> the similarity. Settle down, you two. The similarity is there because both of uh, both of these films, or at least the opening of this film and Moonrise Kingdom, revolve around two children who are performing in a way that is very mannered. It's very um, the dialogue is. It's it's, it's a sort of. And it's a, it's a style that runs throughout this film. It's almost a hyper-real style. I mean, it's not attempting to do a naturalistic 70s feel. It's very much a sort of a hyper-real nostalgia of mm. 1970s. And there's something quite detached and unusual and quirky in, in the delivery between these two lead characters in a way that I think Moonrise Kingdom never, never moved beyond. But here we get a sense of character and it comes through the coming-of-age story of that central female character. And what I really loved about this film and what it distinguishes it from Wes Anderson is the way it starts to blur the boundaries between the fantasy and the and the hyper reality um, in a way that Wes Anderson doesn't really play with in, in a, I think any of his films in, in a similar way and I think it does a really great job at blending the, those two artistic modes the cinematic and the theatrical and particularly as we move into almost a sort of a mythical territory yeah. in the latter stages of the film and that was when I was just totally swept up in the film and yet the David Lynch comparison particularly in those those areas of the film or those parts of the narrative I think are really apt I, th- I thought of his early short films like The Grandmother I mean that for me the scenes in the woods in, in Girl Asleep 
are very much that kind of, you know, that Freudian sort of subconscious stuff that Lynch was really obsessed with in his sort of student filmmaking days. I, I was, look, I was, I just want to repeat, I was the same. I was watching this film and at first I really was unsure about, I, I, I was, I was really fearing it was going to be derivative and way too twee for its own good. But it, it won me over quite quickly. And me by too. the time yeah. we got to the party scene and people are dancing oh, in gorgeous. unison, just I was almost cheering out loud yeah. for this film. And I did not expect where it was going to go in the second half. The director I thought of a bit was Michelle Gondry, even though I think yeah. this so, film does Michelle Gondry better than Michelle Gondry does both, Michelle Gondry um, most of the time. The Q&A that I did, both I think it was both Rosemary and Matthew had said that, um, and I found this quite fascinating actually, because I, I think the question was something along the lines of, you know, the, the, the typical stage, stage play adapted to film, what did you go through that process? And they were like, well, we were influenced on the stage play by film. So, and Gondry was one of their main influences. That kind um, of handcrafted yeah, aesthetic. That yeah, that kind of bespoke... Everyday objects. Mighty Boosh gets, a, a, I think, oh, a pretty, yeah. A, yeah, it's that's a pretty a good, good point the of object. reference. Like yeah, the, the yeah, character. that kind of weirdness yeah, and that kind of goon show yeah. surreal, surreal aspect to it. Um, the other person that they both mentioned, uh, or the other film that they both mentioned, was Donnie Darko, which I think is a really interesting point of comparison in, in that kind of youth story. For me, what works, I mean, there's so much, I mean, so many of the performances. I think Jonathan Oxlade's production design cannot be under undersold oh, yeah, I mean it looks I mean it's just yeah. a beautiful looking yeah. film but Bethany I just have to keep gushing over because she's such a normal presence and I use that word very hesitatingly but she's such a kind of calm normal person in this very strange fantastic world well I think and it's just that that tension is just what it manages to do in terms of just pulling the audience in just extraordinary. I think you could very much read this film as saying she's an everyday school kid. Yeah. And whether it's the more fantastical elements or everyday life, it's a kind of hyperactive extension of her psyche because this is, yeah, a coming-of-age moment where she's grappling with peer pressure, bullying, how she I relates to families. I love the bitches. The bitches in the this film. Are just Jade, Sapphire her and sexuality Amber. too, we oh, should mention. They... I mean, this takes that kind of emerging teen sexuality really seriously respectfully yeah. and never at all sleazy or or exploitive it's a really rare thing for or patronizing film. too or yeah. like patronizing. it's sort of it's yeah. a really nice um a really nice balance the stage play apparently had adult actors playing these roles which i was really fascinated to hear if you look up online for images of the stage play it's adults playing teenagers right. um huh. and rosemary was saying that it was quite important to them for the film to have children or oh, not children's Absolutely not children, yeah. but young people who were the same ages as the characters. I don't think that would have translated roles. on screen as well. Yeah, and no. I think that that's I a really interesting creative... On stage, on but, stage it makes but, yeah. total sense. But I think it's a really fascinating uh, way to kind of think through in a way the 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 performance, not just the performances, but the the kind of interpersonal relationships and... The, the other film, in terms of thematic and even style, this reminded me of was Labyrinth because it's a similar story oh, that's such a good call. of a girl grappling mm -hmm. with what parts of my childhood do I hang on to which are precious and what parts do I need to leave behind because adulthood beckons and both films involve a very seductive but probably dangerous and sleazy male character that she has to wrap her head around. I mean, there's this wonderful Serge Gainsbourg type oh, character in this. so much. Tremaine, what's his name? Yeah. He's so good. Who's obviously, you know, 
a bad person, but he's also very seductive and charming, and he's a bit like David Bowie in Labyrinth. We're going to play the, that awful film critic stacks on film titles, but I was thinking of Company of Wolves <laughs> yeah, when I was watching call. it too, yeah. which I guess Company of Wolves and Labyrinth are quite closely related too, if you think about it from that perspective. I was going to name drop Wizard of Oz, but that's really not, not, as, not as relevant as the two you mentioned. Sure, I mean, th- these are all films about girls film that age, yeah. yeah. Jenga, let's do it. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because this, <laughs> this is a South Australian film. Yeah. Yes. Yep. It, it reminded me in terms of the, just that bridge of the two art forms of and I know they're very different type of films but look both ways again another film which takes uh, like animation and, and painting you know, yep. yeah, and bridges that with the kind of live action and that had that same sense of vibrancy both of these films they're exciting to watch they're stylistically exciting there's something exciting about watching these these young actors do something quite in- incredible and remarkable I, this is a film I came away after watching and I was in a real buzz like this was yeah, an exciting too. film to come away from watching oh good <laughs> it is that kind of film and and most people I know, I mean, you know, I, I've met some people who it hasn't worked for them, but most people I know have been really excited and energised by this film, I think because we don't expect this from Australian cinema as a rule. And we, we, all, we are all big advocates of Australian cinema and we like to support it, but this was a very... We didn't, I didn't see this one no, coming. neither. Um, I first heard about this from people overseas because it played at... I think it played at Adelaide first and then it went to Berlin. I know that it's played other places Or may have been in Toronto Could have been. before then. I heard buzz from it from overseas first yep. because somebody came to me and had said, what's what's the story with this Australian film called Girl Asleep? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Well, you're a first-time <laughs> film director, so, yeah, yep. some of the cast are kind of recognisable but, um, but not quite. It really is sort of a whole pool of talents that... I suppose aren't part of the mainstream industry, and you know the, the, they're not the people we always see time and time again on television. It's quite a, yeah, this really interesting new group, and just sort of this incredible explosion of creativity. I know it's probably early days, but in the Q and A, was there anything about subsequent projects? Do you get the sense that Rosemary Myers, the, the director's name, yeah, is on to something else? That there's something kind of in the wings? Because this this feels like. Yeah, like I said, something exciting that you sort of want to see the next project already. My understanding is that she's quite an established figure. Uh, in theatre. In theatre. I mean, yeah. so, that theatre company... And same, same with um, Matthew. Matthew uh, is And they, they collaborated. This yeah. is one of three projects they did quite closely together about teenagers. And I think the first one was set in the 90s and they did one in the 80s and this was their 71. So I, I, let's just start the, kick, let's start the campaign. Kickstarter for that trilogy. Yeah. Like, I, would, yeah. I, would, I would give money. When my son's old enough, I want to move to Adelaide so we can go to the Windmill Theatre and see those productions yep. because yep. They're, they it's sound beautiful. amazing. Yeah. Beautiful. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Gene Wilder singing Pure Imagination from the film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Of course, we played that to acknowledge the fact that uh, Wilder died um, last week, not too soon, I think, after our show last week. So that's why we're mentioning it now, and we're all a bit, bit emotional hearing that gorgeous you. song. I'm going to glass you, Paul, but I can't do this on radio. <laughs> it's too much. It's too much. Gene Wilder, for many, is you know the, the you know known for his his role in that extraordinary children's film, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I only saw that for the first time a few years ago, and was really? yeah, and it didn't matter. It, it's not that's one. A, it's not one of those films you had to have seen as a kid. I discovered. I, I loved it. I envy you that experience. Yeah. actually. I, I mean, it was so much a part of my growing up. I can't imagine I what miss, it would be I like. I missed that for some reason, yeah. but it was lovely seeing it for the first time as an oh, adult, so it's not too late. But of course, he's known for his incredible comedic roles with Mel Brooks and then his later career with, with Richard Pryor. 
And we were just talking about Dolly the Sheep in Woody Allen's Everything You Wanted oh, to Know About Sex, but we're afraid to ask. I think that's his finest moment. I think it is his finest moment. Because he that's really sells you his love for that sheep. If, if you want to watch 15 <laughs> minutes about Gene Wilder falling in love with a sheep and actually really going with that story, that's, what, that's a film that I recommend for you. It, it he, wasn't Gilda Radner. His true love was the sheep. He does the most... Ex- it's on YouTube. He just does the most extraordinary 20-second reaction shot when he meets the sheep or hears of this alluring <laughs> sheep it is it is magic i mean it is the magic i mean they're probably not going to play that in the oscars clip next Badly, year no. they should just do that they should just play the whole the whole damn thing i want to give a shout out to a film um 1974 the screen adaptation of eugene unesco's rhinoceros which is probably my favorite gene wilder film which i believe is on if you're sneaky it, i believe it's on youtube in full but it's karen black zero mostel and gene wilder um, about the world being taken over by rhinoceroses. It's this classic. Of, Never of, even heard of it. It's a classic. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's another play to uh, sort of stage to screen adaptation. Mm. Classic of absurdist theatre, and it's just a. It's a kind of TV movie aesthetic. It's not you know wild cinema, but it's um, what I mean. The combination of Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder alone is is enough to. Stop traffic. But, well, for um, the second time, of course, because they were in the producers' system. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. While we're giving shouts out to um, all things Wilder, if you're in the process of mourning or memorialising him, which I know a number of us are, um, the BBC Desert Island Discs episode with Gene Wilder is absolutely beautiful and it, it encapsulates he, one of his great strengths which was that comic tenderness that he could you know he could sell a, a comic line like no other and then he could have you tearing up the next with those eyes and that tenderness ah yeah what a year for losses this it's, year just it's keeps such a, it's such a corny thing to say but i honestly can't believe that i didn't know gene wilder like he's so mm. much a part of the world, you know. He's a very empathetic way of performing, even yeah, at the most I, I, outrageous. I forget that where, I didn't know him. Yeah. You know, he just felt so familiar and so so much a part of my world. I think comic tenderness, Josh, is a beautiful way to, to, to sum up his power. Rest in peace, Gene Wilder. Thank you for all the really sensational times. You're listening to Plato's Cave with Thomas, Alex and Josh. Three, triple, ah. Wiener is an American documentary that premiered earlier this year at the Sundance Film Festival, where it won the US Documentary Grand Jury Prize. It follows the campaign by the charismatic and outspoken ex-congressman Anthony Wiener to become the New York mayor in 2013, two years after he resigned from the US House of Representatives in the shadow of a sexting scandal, where he had sent a shot of his crotch to a woman on Twitter. The film follows his attempted comeback into political and public life, the role played by his wife, Huma Aberdeen, who is a top aide to Hillary Clinton, and the impact of further revelations that occurred during the events documented in the film. Evoking the coverage of Bill Clinton's sex scandal and Elliot Spitzer's prostitution scandal, as depicted in the 2010 documentary Client 9, Wiener examines the nature of political scandals questions concerning personal privacy for public figures and perhaps also issues of moral hypocrisy and pathological behaviour. I'm just going to throw out there as suggestions. What, which point would we like to start with on this film? I saw this uh, on a screener just before MIF and I looked at it as a kind of, what's the word, a sort of uh, pretty benign historical curio 
Um, it's like, oh, yeah, we know. I remember that guy, the, the, the trouser photo man. Um, I remember this and I thought it was kind of fun and funny and, and it was like, oh, there's that. And, of course, re-watching it for tonight's show, things have happened in the life of our friend Mr Weiner since then. Yeah, last week, in There's fact. Yeah. Very interesting postscript to this. And I mean, yeah, so it, I had a very, very different... So he's been caught again. Um, the difference this time is that the sexting photograph... Uh, in, in, he was asleep next to his toddler son. Oh, his toddler son was asleep next to him. Yeah, thank you for that clarification. <laughs> yeah, I think I want to get that. sexting. That would be impressive. <laughs> that just got weirder. Weird. Than the, yeah. I mean, the story's weird anyway, and mm-hmm. I made it weirder. That's really good. <laughs> That's really, really good. So I had a very different reaction watching this film a second time because this suddenly went from being, like I said, like a historical curio to being something that's very, very, very in the now. And I had a... Yeah, very. St- I'm, I don't know whether my reaction was too strong, so I'm I'm going to hold. But I'm really curious to hear what you guys think because I I don't know whether I'm swinging a little bit to an extreme perspective because of the topicality of it. But I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts first. I I won't say enjoyed this documentary because I actually felt uncomfortable throughout most of this documentary. But I think it's relevant and I think it's important and I think it picks up on a lot of the, the points raised by Alex Gibney's docker, which I really liked. I thought Client 9 was a really impressive yeah, documentary. Look, we discussed this on the show when we were doing MIF coverage at the time, but we, we discussed Client 9 a lot. Yeah, and, and it, I think one of the takeaways that Gibney was getting at was, was the not just the role of the media, but the way the media was serving certain political interests and that maybe Spitzer was a target because he was... Well, he, I think he was dubbed the Sheriff of Wall Street. I mean, he was out there to get those with power, those with money. And so he, he was succeeding too. And he was succeeding yeah. and that's why, you know, the takedown seemed quite um, uh, not coincidental. And I think there was a degree of that with the Wiener because the film opens with him attacking the Republicans. I mean, he really went them in Congress over 9-11 and, and funds for the, you know, respondents. The Republicans refusing to fund 9-11 veterans. Yeah, all yeah, the emergency workers. Yep. So there was that sense of, of, okay, he's become a target again. But I think what's interesting in this film is what it raises in terms of the relationship between the media and, and politics across a number of different spectrums. And where I thought this documentary really stood aside from Client 9 was the, the role of Huma, the, the wife, and the way in which yeah. her, her role in the media starts attacking her in completely hypocritical uh, and contradictory ways. I mean, first that she has to stick by him and then they're complaining that she is sticking by him. And the way that it, the, the media's sideshow, which, which seemed to kind of be distracted from him to her, and she becomes the focal point of, of that. And the way the documentary, as it develops, you see how that shifts the the Wiener campaign when he finally does come back and he's running for, for mayor of New York. And even, I think, as of last week, Trump was accusing the... Uh, use this incident, the latest incident, to criticise the Hillary campaign, saying, how can you have the wife of a of a pervert working for you? So, again, the wife becomes the kind of the symbol at which, you know, rich white men are, and, and powerful white men are trying to take this other figure down. I found this documentary absolutely fascinating and riveting. Like, I think it's a really strong doco. I, 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 it, it's, I, I haven't been affected by a documentary like this in quite some time. And I think it, it raises a lot of fascinating, fascinating questions. I mean, there is this issue of you get the sense that this guy is being, who, who could have done a lot of political good, is being taken down for something that's essentially, you know, that's part of his personal life. So that, that's one question. I mean, but, you know, there is the counter-argument that if you're going to have somebody representing us politically, they need to be kind of squeaky clean. But then again, he didn't start a, a war on, 
he didn't start an illegal war. He isn't covering up for people who caused the collapse of the banks. He isn't covering up pedophile priests. I mean, you know, in, in terms he of the He didn't do sins, anything illegal. Yeah, he didn't actually even yeah. do anything uh, uh, illegal. Spits are very different. So I think that, that yeah. I mean, in, and I think the film's quite careful to make sure that that, that is really emphasised, that, yep. you know, crimes were committed in one case and they weren't in another. But at the same time, it is infuriating to watch some of his behaviour, mm. knowing that he is a smart man who should know that this behaviour... I mean, I'm not blaming... You know, we, I'm, we're not doing victim-blaming him here at all, but he should know that this stuff is going to obliterate him. Why does he keep doing it and then deny that it's an addiction? And then there's the whole story about how this is affecting his wife, Huma, and I think the filmmakers obviously realise at one point that she's a very interesting part of this story and there's, there's some quite amazing scenes where they take the camera off him and just focus on her reactions and that's very uncomfortable because unlike him, she doesn't like being in the spotlight and she's obviously hurting. Mm. Um, and, and, and then as the film progresses, you also start to see that it's not just the media and the scandal that's damaging her, that he's not always the nicest person to her either and you know this kind of charismatic man i don't know i started to get this sense of someone very manic and very un unstable and i was constantly questioning how i felt towards him how i felt towards uh the depiction of the scandal it was weird watching comedians who i normally really love making fun of him because suddenly you realize how hurtful that is i really love the way this film challenged so much of my own preconceptions continuously through the film i think my second watch of this I was very, very conscious of, of and I, maybe just because I did more reading, but uh, Huma Aberdeen is probably one of the most powerful public servants in the United States. Mm. I can't for the life of me figure out why that wasn't a documentary on her. She's certainly the more interesting person. She certainly had the more interesting career. She has the most interesting story. Um, well, she, 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 she flies under more. the radar, though. I think she, that, that's why. And she obviously, yeah. I mean, obviously, I think that, you know, and he says at one point, you know, I wanted to do the doco you know, there's a sort of suggestion that maybe she wasn't so sure that it was very much kind of a film about him that he wanted to do. Mm. Um, and I think that that's made quite clear. But watching it a second time, and again, maybe it's his proximity uh, sensitivity to the case of this recent sex scandal. Um, it just felt to me the way... And, and in relation, there's a younger woman who um, does a second reveal of, of sexting during this film that I felt was was presented quite appallingly in this film. I felt that she was quite exploited. I didn't feel that the first time I saw it, though, so that's not necessarily a crit criticism of the film, more of a observation of my own, perhaps my own hypocrisy. Like, so the first time I saw it, it didn't bother me. The second time I saw it, I just... Just why are you following the way that the way that his story hinged on the reactions of the women around him sat very very uncomfortably with me. I don't know. I, I know are, I'm not are you expressing myself to very well. The adult film performer, the twenty three year old woman that tries to follow him into the where he gives his mm -hmm. speech, and the camera's really on her, and she's really lapping it up. Yep. But she and she's like, you know, all of this. Uh, she says something like, you know, oh my gosh, all of this ridiculous behaviour for a 23-year-old. And it's like, God, she's 23. Just get the camera off her, you know? like Where I think the documentary, the strong... I mean, I felt both appalled by that behaviour and also sorry for her in, in a sense. Now, that sounds condescending, but that 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 whole stunt, and it is a media stunt in a, in a series of media stunts, is set up by Howard Stern. You have Sleazy yep. Stern sitting there across the, the, the desk in his studio going, well, let's go down there, let's get him. And the adult film company that jumped on him when this yeah. happened. And, and again, yeah. it's a series of exploitations on mm. every level, and that's what I think was interesting because I, I didn't find a comfortable identification with him at all. Mm. And as the, as the longer the documentary goes on, that becomes really difficult. The point of identification or empathy is certainly with, with, with Huma, Huma, and even more so in I, light of what's happened yeah. in the last... And I, 
I have week. to be fair and say I don't I don't know if I'm criticizing the film. I think that I'm just because I've had such I had such two strikingly different viewings of the film but just because of circumstances being what they were I think it would be really dishonest of me to, to look to position that as a criticism of the film just that it was a very striking almost very different experiences you know it was just quite different I really would like to see a documentary I would rather watch a documentary on Hoover Aberdeen well I think um, maybe this is the gateway doco <laughs> for I that I doubt she'd give you access yeah, I, don't, I <laughs> yeah, blame her unlike I mean, her husband I'm, she doesn't like being exposed on camera no, in either way I mean no. <laughs> well no I use that deliberately he, he, he obviously likes yeah. being seen yeah. on camera one way or the other I mean he, he's an exhibitionist oh absolutely yeah. and you get that that impression in the film but the mm. more that I read about her and I've, I've also been um, it was I mean again just coincidence but all this stuff with her is it Roger Roger Isles from Fox News. I've been reading all of that stuff at the same time. So all these stories have kind of merged, I think, you know, this sort of power and and sexual harassment. I think something very dark at the the core of American media and politics. It's really, really badly with me. And I think that perhaps my second viewing of this film was just a lot of my disdain at this this situation really culminated in that second viewing so i think this is why it's such a great film because yeah. we, i'm not going to disagree with we're that. actually we haven't actually touched really on the filmmaking and we're talking about how we responded to all the people involved and 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 that's you know and who how are the, who are the filmmakers i didn't i didn't even look them up because i'm one a professional has, one has background <laughs> one has a background in documentary making um and the other one used to be a political aide of his so at a very early campaign right. i think he's a and i think you might People have to double check this, but I think he worked on an early run for for mayor with him. So one of the filmmakers and Wiener have known each other for quite a long time. So that's how we got that would that for extraordinary that access. Intimacy. It's, it's yep. incredibly yeah. intimate. I mean, there mm. are scenes where he's losing it and he tells everyone in the office just to get out. He needs some space, but the camera remains. And yeah. it never seems to be a sense of oh, you're, that's it. You're out too. And even to the point later on in the in the documentary, towards the end of the narrative, we we have him say sort of question, "Why am I doing this? What? Why did I let you in? Like, why mm. am?" And it's almost like he that sense of. The exhibitionist in him and the ego is confronting this kind of question of why do I keep doing this? Not just the documentary, but mm. you know the, the sexting and, and all the rest of his of his life and what it's culminating. I mean, it, it, the the other point of interest, I guess, is that this film feels not dissimilar to political satire. I mean, there's a moment where the like woman turns like a, up. No, I've, well, the I, guy's called Wiener. I yeah, mean, it's well, insane. And it yeah. felt like a Christopher yeah. Guest film. Yeah, I was going to say when it, I was watching like it, Veep, I remember. Yeah, yes, it was sort of Veep, like it, it has Amanda Yunuchi written all over it. There's a moment where the uh, adult actress we, t- we remarked of before is, is, is heading towards their building and you see that ch- I think it's the chief of staff say pineapple is, is in the building yeah. and then, then he explains what pineapple is a code word and says oh I probably shouldn't have said that on camera. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and it's like that character of Jonas in Veep. I mean yeah. it is yes. like watching an episode of <laughs> political satire. It's I- like that's I absolutely it. had the, the Christopher Guest moment, yeah. like a little lightning bolt. It's like this is really quality political satire. Uh-oh. I think a couple of moments that really stood out with me for just well-crafted documentary making was one where they just left in a really irrelevant scene where he starts cracking Rod- Rodney Dangerfield jokes. Yeah. And they're funny. And then he suddenly makes a joke about why a man needs two women. And you can see the look on his face going, oh, this is a Freudian slip I didn't want to make on camera. Um, and the other amazing moment is when he's doing an interview with somebody who's in a different part of the country. So there's the, in two different studios and they cut between oh, the brutal. footage going to air brutal. and then the footage of him alone in a studio just having this argument with a voice that we can't hear. And that's a, an electrifying moment. And, the, well, the scene in the bakery as well. 
And, oh god! And yeah. that, that I think was a really interesting <laughs> one because of the way in which it, it reframes it, it frames an argument in a bakery where he's obviously on the kind of campaign trail, and as he's leaving, he gets into a heated argument with a, a, another with a Jewish man in, as, as he's exiting, and this thing becomes about you know, don't judge me, I've got my rabbi for that, and of course this becomes news, and we see John Stewart and I think John Oliver maybe making jokes about, or Stephen Colbert making jokes about it, and then it, it, it has a full circle back where we hear finally the audio that seems to have sparked this and this comes back to the wife and he says and you married a filthy arab or you married an arab or something and then we we, come, we cut back to john stewart and he's like okay actually that's that's fair enough now i understand so you get that sense of the way in which the media can present such a pervasive view of someone without all the facts and then you get the kind of the revisionist aspect which i think the documentary does overall you know on a, on a, yeah. on a, on a broader scale it gives a really good lesson about how the media is constructed and hell how film is constructed how editing can make or break a certain story and change the slant of what you're watching the timing i mean everything that's come out um in the last week in the news about the 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 current controversy the current scandal references the documentary Mm. um which i think is really interesting and that it's now part of the story in that hey you thought that story was over and we see him and and we had a kind of you know we we watched the film and then we kind of reached a bit of a judgment on that but now this has happened and we're sort of in this post this postscript like you said it's almost wearing like that now the footnote Moment, you know, where, where um, Aberdeen has has left him. She's separated from him. Um, the last thing I read was that child services, protective services, were now uh, investigating. Oh, I hadn't heard yeah. that. Jesus, um, yeah, b- because of the the proximity of the child and the photograph to the business, to the business. Hmm. Yep. Well, good radio. It, it, good it's, radio. It's infuriating because I reckon yep. he would have been an amazing force of good in in Congress or or as mayor, and that's why I got so frustrated with him. Like. Your politics, I think, are smart and they're sound. Why do you keep doing this stupid, these stupid things? It's very hard to watch and not have the phrase "keep it in your pants." Yeah, kind of. Like, I mean, I was just, yeah, I, I had a very different reaction. I was very amused by it the first time because that'll it was be so his much... campaign slogan for the next one. I'm there. <laughs> Weena, keeping it in my pants. The first time I saw it, I, I mean, I, I, I feel that I am being unfair to, to the documentary, and I don't mean to be because obviously it's had quite a strong impact on me but yeah this very strange relationship of seeing it twice and circumstances changing so dramatically that the film now means something very different than it meant the first time yep. that i saw it and i guess that's what i'm getting at so i'm not critiquing bad filmmaking or anything like that it just sat a whole lot more uncomfortably with me the second time because it's not a it's not a historical curio anymore yeah it's an ongoing it's, story this is a current news story We've been talking about Wiener. It's currently screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. I mean, I'm just getting the vibe. This is going to be one of those zeitgeisty films I think we'll be talking about for many years. I think you're right. So try and see this film. Three. Triple. Sunset Song is the new film by the acclaimed English filmmaker Terence Davies, whose previous film, The Deep Blue Sea, we covered all the way back in April 2012. Oh, God. Yeah. Like many of Davies's films from the past two decades, and he's not exactly prolific, Sunset Song is a novel adaptation, in this case something of a passion project that he's been wanting to do, I believe, for around 30 years now. Uh, the original novel by Lewis Grassic Gibbon was published in 1932, and it's considered a classic of Scottish literature, I'm told. If you went to school in Scotland, you would have probably have read this novel at some point. It's a story of resilience and hardship about Chris Guthrie, played by Agnes Dean, 
a young Scottish woman growing up in a farming community in Aberdeenshire, in northern Scotland, during the start of the 20th century and the start of the First World War. Very much a big historical drama. We we were last week we were talking about the film Indignation and how it had the veneer of a prestige picture with a lot more under the surface than you initially think my feeling is a little similar to this one it has the veneer of the big worthy epic historical drama but it's a terence davies film so chances are there's a lot more going on than originally meets the eye maybe i'm team davies yeah I I'm, think I'm team davies I, I big think, time <laughs> i think that um it's one of those films that um, i don't know if you're new to davies whether this is the film to start with i'm not really sure i don't know what would be the film to start with um I mean, I love this, but I'm, t- mm. I'm Team Davies. Um, I got what I signed up for. I and think I you're loved right. There's a lot of what's in this film stuff he's done before. Yeah, it, it did feel, they did feel like there were callbacks, especially to um, Distant Voices Still Live. Very Just much the so, idea yeah. of that kind of, you know, the empty rooms. You know, people would leave a room and there's a room. You know, this. That's probably the one to start with. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's a, that's just a beautiful film. Um, Distant Voices Still Lives, which uh, Jeffrey Rush wrapped, I believe, at the MIF opening night. Uh, he did something he did. very odd. Yeah, I've never, I've never, that was, when I went out that <laughs> night, I did have a bit to drink, but I thought, you know, it's like, did I, I woke up the next day, did I hear Jeffrey Rush rap, Distant Voices Still Lives? Yeah, I think that happened. He did a rap. It was quite amazing, actually. <laughs> but Rush is a big fan of Terence Davies. As yeah. he demonstrated very clearly at the Q&A, at the Terence Davies Q&A, he was front row and he was like, oh, 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 like, it was, it was beautiful, oh, actually, bless. seeing Rush really fanboy quite hard over, over Davies. I just think he's an extraordinary filmmaker. Um, this is exactly what I signed up for, and I loved it. I didn't have any surprises, I guess, um, but I knew I knew what I wanted from it, and he gave it to me in, in bucket loads, and I just adored every frame. Um, I'm, I, that's not great film criticism. I realise that because it's highly subjective, but um, I love the I love his use of light. You know, there's this kind of Vermeer yeah. quality going on. I thought Agnes Dean, who I knew was a model, like and and mm. um, you know, Mrs. or ex ex Mrs. Scientologist Giovanni. Yeah, Rubisi. like I think most people know her as yeah. a model, except for Terence Davies, who'd never heard of her before. <laughs> he, very, he cast her knowing nothing about which her. She's brilliant. She was very famous for she. She used to have a very short cropped. Blonde, blonde kind of platinum blonde hair, beautiful woman. Just yeah, like, she's not conventionally modelly, is she? No, I, really I extraordinary. Her, like but, a lot of presence yeah. and quite quirky. She did a lot of work with um, Doc Martin. Right. So she was sort yeah, of the, Doc the show Martin. or the shoes. The shoes. Right. Okay. <laughs> the show would be. I wouldn't be raving about no, this. English countryside again. Just you know, wanders through. I've been here for a hundred um, years. They shot all the exteriors in sixty-five mil, where the interiors were done digitally. So I think that oh, accounts really? for how dramatic those exteriors look in comparison. Really interesting. The cinematography in this film is just striking. The cinematography, I was like, well, this must be some amazing cinematographer whose work I will know. And we looked, we looked it up. Josh and I looked it up. It's a guy called Michael McDonough. The only thing of his that I knew, he's done TV. The only thing of his that I knew was Winter's Bone from 2010, which is an extraordinary film too. Um, Yeah, he's not, he's not that big a name. He's, um, he certainly, you know, earned his stripes. He's done the work, but this isn't like a prestige cinematographer. Um, And I mean, the way that this film, I mean, all of Davies' films look really beautiful. But this is quite, quite magical. Yeah, look, I feel a little unqualified to criticise this film in some ways because, look, I'm not familiar with the source material. Obviously, I mean, a lot of... I've actually read a lot of the reviews online who seem quite fixated on this as an adaptation. And so that, that approach is completely lost on me. My only other experience is uh, with, with Terence Davies' work is uh, Deep Blue Sea. Mm. That's... N- 
not, cracker of a not film. Not the film with the sentient shark. Not the shark one. Open the, other open one, yeah. the, the, the Samuel L. Jackson, yeah. LL Cool J. Yeah, which I loved. I mean, I was a LL massive cool fan. LL Cool J in its Terrence Davies film. Just hold me. <laughs> with, just with, hold me. With mechanical oh. cyborg sharks. That, you know. the, the Deep Blue Sea is possibly my favourite Terrence Davies film, but, you know, it's, it's a narrow lead. Yeah. Um, what I look thinking back about the approach to Deep Blue Sea was the the way the backdrop of the war it was kind of there but it was never really in the foreground it was always this event which was somehow off screen or it informed the lives of those key characters there's there's a bit of that in in this and again it's something that's sort of hovering in the background if you're aware of the time setting it's sort of there for me I, I guess I struggle with this film in some ways because for me what the, the, for me the strength or the takeaway for this was the poetics of the landscape. I think there's a, a striking use of the land, a striking use of the mise en scene in the, in the change. The way you know it's that it's almost a literary technique. You, you use the seasonal change to talk about the changes in a person's life, and Davies certainly adopts that strategy here in the look of the film to comment on the the lead character's kind of change and the change in her life. Where I struggle with this was in the, the performances and the drama, and the film goes for over two hours, I think it's two and a quarter hours, and I found it really languid. I really struggled with the pace. I really struggled with the fact that I kept trying to look for something beneath the surfaces of these characters, and I, 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 just, I just couldn't find it. And I guess when you're doing that, the longer a film goes on, the more frustrated you, you, you can get. So, you know, I guess I fell into that trap, sadly. But for, And structurally, there was one other issue that I... I, I thought was an interesting decision in terms of this is a film primarily about one woman's experience. I mean, the, the use of voiceover, <laughs> a little bit like Terence Malick, the use of voiceover to provide that contrast between interiority and exteriority in the landscape. But there's a sequence towards the end where we suddenly shift to, uh, to uh, out of her perceptual sphere into the sequence involving World War One. And that was a really strange break, and I'm not quite sure the decision why to suddenly do that. i curious if that was in the source material. I'm sure. Well, yeah, yeah maybe. It's, I'm it's not sure. An interesting, it's an interesting formal choice either way. But it is unusual when a film breaks like that yeah. when you're with some. I'm not sure what so that closely. added to the to the narrative. What that gave us, unless the implication is that's her, her preferred imagination of what happened in that moment. A kind of fantasy, possibly, which would, which would actually fit in quite well with the kind of broader Davis. Because yeah, he incorporates Vision. kind of fantasy a lot in his in that his film. collapsing, not in the same way as Girl Asleep, but quite quite a different <laughs> way. I mean, a lot of what I like about Davies's films sort of pop up in that the, the, the yeah. use of sort of non diegetic imagery. And there's a very subtle shot close to the start of this film of a stone circle, and then it's repeated at the end. And the idea of everything that happened in between was a little bit magical and and and, and mystical. And he likes to draw out the magic of everyday living. And I think there are moments of this film like that. And also his use of group singing. He has, I mean, uh, the Deep Blue Sea has one of the most powerful moments I've ever seen where the people huddled on the ground sing together. And he uses that group singing in this film in a really powerful way as well. things like dances, all these sort of musical-based social gatherings. Celebrations of life, yeah. Yeah. And he he spoke a lot when he did the Q&A in Melbourne. He spoke a lot about being a young man and his sister taking him to to see musicals. You know, the kind of idea of music in public spaces having power. That, um, that sums it up really, perfectly, yeah. Just extraordinarily beautiful. It sounds like a random um, director to bring in, but Davies is one of the favourite directors of John Waters, um, oh, wow. who I don't know whether it was this year or last year at the Baltimore Film Festival, um, presented a screening of Deep Blue Sea. It was, you know, like one of his favourite films. He was like, this is one of the greatest films ever made. And he gave this quite epic speech about it, apparently. And I think that... Uh, I'm not saying that these are directors with anything in common, but they're kind of they. I think they're an interesting pair because they 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 are what they are. They do what they do. 
you're either into John Waters or you're not. You're either yeah. into Terence Davies or you're not. Neither of them curtail. And they're both auteurs. Like they're yeah, both they really are. They're hyper literate. They come the abusive from, father is of always there in Davies' films, and they yeah. have this kind of you know this this very kind of public queer story that's part of their. I mean, I wouldn't use brand in the case of either of them, but certainly their narrative, you know, their, their narratives as artists, mm. you know, is, is that's a very strong part of it. And, and the, the role that film and culture have played in their development, not just as, as filmmakers, but as human beings. They're both people that feel passionately about art and, and they, they are unapologetic about that. And I think that they make unapologetic films. I know that that's a kind of random parallel to draw, but I, I, I do feel that, that in a way, yeah, you kind of like Waters or you don't. You kind of like Davies or you don't. That works. I was going to say, I mean, structurally, this film feels like three very different segments that, that sort of come together as a whole. You could almost watch this as three episodes of a, of a really strong HBO drama, for example. I mean, I, and I was quite happy to watch it all at once, but you've got the very heavy social drama in... At the start, at the end, you have a return to that, but with war as a backdrop. And in the middle, a really beautiful romance story, but you've sort of got this foreboding sense that something is going to go wrong. But that middle section I found absolutely lovely. The, the one takeaway thing I really wanted to say about this film is it reminded me of how much better it is than, say, something like Gone with the Wind. My frustration with Gone with the Wind is it's an epic about a woman put through hardship and she's shown that she only survives by becoming incredibly hard and horrific herself. And and, and the, 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 that's sort of... Yeah, I think there's a, it's a hugely problematic film on so many levels, but that's one I really dislike. This film shows a similar story of a woman going through unbelievable hardship who remains a really strong, good person by the end of it. I feel like this is finally the antidote to all the bitterness I have for Gone with the Wind. <laughs> and Agnes Dean, I think, is... is to be credited for, for that in large part. I think mm. that she brings a warmth She to glows, Chris, like literally glows in She this really film. is that film. I really had, you know, that, oh gosh, it's a famous model in a film. You know, you always have that little ing, and it's like, no, 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 she's an, act, she's an actor. She's a, she's a really, really ta- a remarkably talented actor. Yeah, no. Uh, I, I had no idea. No, I had um, no idea either. I, I mean, I wasn't aware of her modelling background, so mm-hmm. this was my introduction to her, and I just thought, who is that? Yep. More, please. She's just yeah. electric in this film. I mean, it's her film. It's as yep. much a Dean film, I think, as a, as a Davies film, and I think that he cast her precisely for that reason. I think that he's very good at casting women. Yes. Well, I mean, he gave Rachel, Rachel Weiss, Weiss, Weiss yep. rather, one of her best roles. Julian Anderson, time. I think. Oh, yes, House of Mirth. In the yep. House of Mirth. I've seen other Davies. Oh, yep. I take that back. Yeah. No, this, is, this is a much better film than I thought. <laughs> We're going to have to wrap things up here on Plato's Cave. You've been listening to myself, Thomas Cordwell, along with Josh Nelson, Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Girl Asleep is currently screening at Cinema Nova. It will be getting an extended theatrical release uh, at other cinemas from this Thursday, courtesy of Madman Entertainment. Wiener is screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image for the next three weeks, courtesy of Madman Entertainment. And Sunset Song is on limited release, courtesy of Madman Entertainment. I said Umbrella Entertainment with Girl Asleep, didn't I? Did I get that right? Well, you've, you've made the correction now. If Girl Asleep is Umbrella, the other two is Madman. Hi, That's Umbrella. It. Hi, Madman. We <laughs> yeah. like your films. Thank you kindly. Thank you, Nova. Thank you, Acme. Thank you, everybody. You've been listening to Plato's Cave. Uh, keep listening to Triple R. There's plenty of songs for an Australian sunset coming up next on Local and or General with Jason Moore Wiener. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.